Good morning. I'm going to begin this morning by confessing that this is a passage that I think I have wrestled with more than any other. Um, but it's been a good wrestle over the last couple of weeks. This is not an easy passage at all. In many respects, it's a very controversial passage. Um, but I leave it at the end of all of that with an even greater sense of awe for the main character in it, this man, our saviour, Jesus, and for the writer of this gospel and the way that he has chosen and placed his material. And I hope that some of that comes through to you this morning as we work our way through. We're going to begin simply by reading the passage, just letting it sit with us. So we're looking at John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. If you've got scriptures with you, you might like to follow as we go. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of, of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, we're going to begin with what is perhaps the simplest of the controversies that are part of this passage. For a long time, many did not consider the Gospel of John even to be historically reliable. Many believed that either it should be interpreted allegorically, so when the writer talks of a pool that had five roofed colonnades, what he's really talking about is, is perhaps the Torah, the five books, or that it was written by some later zealous believer who was not familiar with Jerusalem or with the area surrounding it. And one of the key passages 
that is pointed to to support that later belief is this particular passage. Because no pool fitting anything like the description that is given in this gospel had ever been uncovered by archaeologists in the area. That is, until it was uncovered. 1888, Conrad Schick found a pool fitting exactly the description in John's Gospel. It was not, as everybody had assumed, a pentagon shape. But it did have five roofed colonnades. You can see here, one, two, three, four, and one down the middle, five. And it was exactly as described in John's Gospel, but not as people had expected. Now what I've got up here is, is a reconstructed model. It's a one in 50 scale model. Part of a display that is in the um, museum in Jerusalem. This is not what the archaeological site looks like. Archaeological sites never look like that. Where was this pool that was found located? Well, surprise, surprise, it was found, as John said, near the Sheep Gate. So if you're having a look at this diagram up here, you'll notice there's, this is this model, this same model. It's a pretty impressive model. Um, this is the temple here. You have to tip it on its side to match up with the, with the map up there. This line down here marks the boundary of, of the city. That's where the city wall is. You can see here is the Antonia Fortress where the Roman garrison used to keep an eye on everything. Um, and just near there is this gate, which was known as the Sheep Gate. Probably this was the gate where the sheep were taken into the city to be used for sacrifice. And within walking distance of that gate, we see this pool complex here. So that's what the model looks like. The actual archaeological site is a little bit more messy and difficult to figure out what's going on. And the reason for that is that this site has been in continuous use since the time of Jesus and was in continuous use for many hundreds of years before Jesus. So what we have is a layered site with lots of different things going on throughout the ages. So in the 5th century, the Byzantine Empress Eudocia had an enormous basilica built over these pools. Now that was later destroyed and most of the rubble from it fell into the pools. And then later on, the Crusaders built the church of the paralytic over part of this site. The result being that very complex, multi-layered archaeological site but one that nonetheless has brought to an end uh, to any doubts as to whether or not such a pool as described in this gospel existed. Did such a pool exist? Yes, it did. It has been found. 
And so the next thing I want to know is what was the purpose of this pool? What was it there for? Why does this gospel tell us that there were a multitude of disabled people lying around this pool? Now, the pool itself has a very long and complicated history. And archaeologists have continued to work on trying to sort out what that history has been for more than 100 years since this pool was first uncovered. What they believe is that a dam was built across the Bethsaida Valley in the 8th century BC, so hundreds of years before Jesus. And it is believed that that dam was used to supply water uh, to the city via a rock-cut channel. Then, in around 200 BC, that rock-cut channel was enclosed to improve more likely to improve the quality of the water that was going to the city, and a second pool was built on the south side of the original. Now, tradition states that this pool was used to wash the sheep that were going for sacrifice. That's the tradition. But if we look at some of the evidence, it maybe calls into question that tradition. The pool is 13 metres deep. You wouldn't normally wash sheep in something that's 13 metres deep. And it was used to supply water to the city. So probably you're not going to want to swim hundreds and hundreds of sheep through your town water supply. So whilst that is probably unlikely, we can see that you know perhaps this pool was used to source the water for washing the sheep, uh, given the proximity to the, the gate there and to the temple complex. Archaeology tells us also that the pool had large stone steps leading into it. So, presumably, it was used for bathing, for bathing humans. But what kind of bathing? Many have suggested that this pool was a mikvah, uh, used for the Jews for ritual purification. And maybe but that doesn't really explain the multitude or the great number of disabled people that were lying there around the pool. Why had this pool become such a magnet for the lame and the blind and the paralysed? And the answer to that question can be found in part at least in the response of the paralysed man to the question that Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? From it, we learn, at least in this man's mind, that healing happened in this pool. But we learn that it didn't happen because of any properties in the water. They weren't here bathing in a mineral spring and getting some sort of healing benefits from the salts in the water. In fact, mostly they weren't even bathing in the water at all. The gospel record says that they were lying around the pool and that they were waiting for something to happen. They were lying around the pool waiting for the water to start moving because evidently healing was contingent upon being first into that water when the water started 
moving. So whatever this pool had been, whether it was a water supply or whether it was something to do with sheep or whether it was a mikvah, what it had become was a very well-known place of healing. And as such, it was a magnet for people with all sorts of ailments and disabilities. And all of them were desperate to participate in this cruel race to be first into the water when the water started moving. So, we know what the purpose of the pool was at this time. But what was the source of the healing that was on offer there? And that has been the source of deep controversy surrounding this passage, the source of which has been verse 4. So if you've got your scriptures there, have a look and see what verse 4 says. Anyone got verse 4? No. No one's got verse 4 because verse 4 doesn't exist in our modern Bibles. If you're reading a King James, you might find verse 4, but for most modern translations, verse 4 is not there. Now, many people would point to the fact that verse 4 used to be there and now it's not there as saying, well, how can you trust anything that the Bible says? If they can pull a verse out when they don't like it anymore, how can you believe what the Bible says? I would argue, counter to that, that the very fact that verse 4 is no longer there is all the evidence you need that the Bibles that we are reading today are as close as they possibly can be to what was in the original. Let me show you why. Imagine this is the original that was written of this gospel and it's sent to one of the churches and they read it and they go, wow, this is great stuff. They take a copy and they keep that copy for themselves and they pass the other one, the original, onto another church somewhere in the empire. And they read it and go, wow, this is great stuff. And they make copies and they send it to more people and those people make copies. And then those people make more copies and it's getting sent all around you know, the known empire at that time. And I think I might have, oh no, I didn't get sick of cutting and pasting at that time. One more. And in the end, there's loads of copies and they're all circulating about. And at some point, our Bible scholars have been comparing some of these copies. Let's say they were reading that one there. And they've compared it to one of the other ones down the bottom. For those who are listening at home, this isn't going to make a lot of sense, this diagram, but basically it's a tree diagram. They're comparing it to one of those other ones down the bottom. And they go, hang on, these are different. And so then what they start to do is they start to look at all of the different manuscripts and see where the difference has come in. And so they might look at that one and go, well, that one's different as well, and these two are different. And the ones before them that they came from, they're different. And the one before it's different. But that's where the difference ends. And none of the other branches of that tree have this difference. And all of the early manuscripts, which are deemed to be more reliable, they don't have it either. 
So on balance, a decision is made that this was not in the original, and so it's removed. That's why you can trust that what we're reading is as close to the original as you can get, because no other book has had to come under as much scrutiny as what our Bibles have from all of the people that have studied it. So that's what's happened with this particular verse. What did the text itself say that was removed? It said this, and you'll find it probably in the footnote of your Bible. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, and the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. That is what many of us grew up with. And, we, and that's what we understood that this passage was all about. Water, perhaps periodically running from the upper pool to the lower pool, was stirred up. Um, we imagine a beautiful you know, mikvah scene here, people coming for ritual cleansing, and every now and then an angel of the Lord comes down and the water's stirred up and somebody gets healed. Well, the manuscript evidence tells us that these words about this angel are not there in the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts. Their presence could be an accidental inclusion of some scribe's notes. Remember, they're not sticking these things through a photocopier and copying them. There's a huge amount of work involved in, for a copyist, and it's possible that some notes in the margin could have been included. Alternatively, this could have been a deliberate addition by some well-meaning scribe who was trying to explain either a genuine belief of the people or to put a religious gloss on what was actually happening in this place. We don't know how these words got in, um, but you would be hard pushed to find either a conservative or a liberal scholar who today um, thinks they are genuine. So the text itself tells us that yes, this was a well-known place of healing. The archaeological evidence confirms yes, the site was used for bathing. And we know from the archaeological evidence that by the first century BC, natural caves had been found uh, to the side of these other pools. And they'd been turned into small baths that were used for healing. The Mishnah implies that at least one of these was sacred to Fortuna, the goddess of fortune. And there are many good reasons to believe that the site came to be used as a healing centre, one of about 400 such centres that were within the empire at the time that were dedicated to the Greco-Roman god of healing. Asclepius. They were known as Asclepions, these places where people went to be healed. Certainly by the time Hadrian rebuilt Jerusalem in the second century, so we're dealing first century here, but by the time Jerusalem was rebuilt in the second century, the site was a fully functioning shrine to Asclepius and also to Serapis, the sun god. They found, you know, models of feet 
with inscriptions to Asclepius from the same site. So we've got all of these different forms of evidence that kind of lead us to think what was actually going on in this place. The thing that kind of tipped me over from maybe what I'd previously thought about this place to what I now think about it was simply putting together a picture in your mind's eye of what is happening in this place. Gospel tells us there's a great many disabled people lying around this pool. So imagine that in your mind's eye. The invalid in the story tells us that many of these disabled people had helpers there to help them get in the pool first. So imagine what's going on here. The water starts to move. Maybe someone's released water from the upper pool to refresh the lower pool. Maybe there's a natural spring, I don't know. Whatever, the water starts to move. And all of these people sitting around the pool charge at the water. So you've got people limping towards the water and hobbling. You've got blind people stumbling towards the water. You've got people hoiking up their relatives, throwing them over their shoulder and heading headfirst to the water. And what's happening to the people who are paralysed? They're getting trampled. You can imagine they're trying to make their way to the water like this or maybe like this, pushing themselves along however they can get there. There's going to be blind people stumbling over them. There's going to be more able-bodied people tripping over them. That, to me, does not sound like a scene of God's grace. That sounds like chaos. And once they're in the water, everyone is pushing and shoving to try and get closest to the source of that movement of the water. Now, you can imagine what it would be like if something like that happened around here. Maybe there was a spot identified in the Yarra River, you know, down near Pound Bend. Water suddenly comes rushing through the tunnel and everyone knows that the first one into the water gets healed. People from all over Victoria would be bringing their disabled relatives and they'd be pushing each other out the way to get to be first into that water. Into this scene of chaos walks Jesus. And he spies out a man whom the gospel writer records has been an invalid for 38 years. Now, we just kind of keep reading at this point. Men, an invalid for 38 years, oh yeah, that's a long period of time, yep. Probably, you know, he was, could have been born like that, and we move on. The writer of this gospel is very careful with his words. And if he gives you a detail like that, then you need to stop and have a think about it. Why is he telling us 38 years? Why doesn't he just say he's been paralysed since birth or he's been paralysed for a very long time? He told us 38 years. No self-respecting Jew would miss the significance of 38 years. Because 38 years was the amount of time that the Jews wandered in the desert for their disbelief. Now we have in our minds 40, and yes, there was some time at the beginning and some time at the end, maybe when they weren't wandering, they were maybe on a more direct course. 
But Deuteronomy 2.14 says, and, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered, there was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. 38 years is a significant time for these people. It reminds them of their unbelief and the consequences of their unbelief. 38 years they wandered in the desert because of unbelief and 38 years this man had been in this condition and here he is still playing a superstitious kind of lottery trying to be first into the water when it stirs. And Jesus has just one simple question for him. Do you want to get well? It seems to us like a pretty silly question. Of course he wants to get well. He's been an invalid for 38 years. But maybe not. Maybe not such a silly question. Maybe if you've lost all hope... Maybe you give up wanting to get well. Maybe if you've been stepped over and walked over and pushed and shoved, you've just given up any hope for ever getting well. Maybe someone who's gotten used to their condition wouldn't want to get well. After all, if this man gets well, he's going to have to find a means to support himself. Do you want to get well? It's an invitation for change and it is a question that all of us at some stage have to answer. Do you want to beat that addiction? Do you want to get your anger under control? Do you want to move on from negative thought patterns? Do you want to learn how to forgive? Do you want to leave your old sinful life behind you? Do you really want to get well? Change doesn't happen for us when we are comfortable in the place that we are in. Real change only happens when we recognise just how helpless we are before God and we are willing to depend on his power. Well, the man responds quickly. He does want to get well. He wants to be made well. He just doesn't see how it's possible because he can't reach these magical healing waters because everyone's stepping over him and getting in first. And he's got no one to help him. And Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And he does, as simply as that. There's no chaos, there's no confusion, there's no pushing others out of the way. He gets up and walks one foot in front of the other. Now, that this man was a Jew is evident in the reaction of the other Jews to what has just happened. They chastise him for picking up his mat on the Sabbath. Now, if he hadn't been a Jew, it probably wouldn't have been such a concern to them. But the Sabbath was a sign of God's covenant with them. 
That was our Old Testament reading this morning. Now, 38 years they'd spent wandering in the desert because of their previous disobedience and unbelief. So they were going to do everything possible to make sure that that didn't happen again. And so their religious leaders had created this whole hierarchy of rules and regulations that had to be followed that would ensure that no one accidentally or deliberately broke the laws of the Sabbath. Evidently, picking up your mat on the Sabbath was a big no-no, lest you broke that fourth commandment. But seeking superstitious or pagan healing on the Sabbath, which would break the first commandment, seems they were more able to turn a blind eye to that one. Jesus is a lot more direct. Stop sinning, he says to the healed man, or something worse may happen to you. 38 years in the desert because of their unbelief. 38 years this man had been an invalid. Neither those years of wandering nor those years of disability would come close to the eternal consequences of sin. Both Israel and this invalid were children of God. With their lips, no doubt they confessed that. But by their actions, they demonstrated a divided loyalty. They had put their trust elsewhere. And we need to ask ourselves, where do I put my trust? Are my lips speaking one message, but my actions are telling people a very different story? Now, I don't expect that anyone here is worshipping around an Asherah pole like the Israelites were doing or seeking healing at a pagan pool like the invalid seems to have been doing. But maybe my trust is in my own abilities. Maybe like the invalid with his eyes fixed on the water waiting for the bubbling or the moving in the water Maybe I'm fixated on something else. Maybe I'm fixated on my education or on my own financial security or on my family or on having a good time, whatever it may be. And maybe these things have become like gods or idols to me. There is deep meaning in this passage. This is not just one of many life-changing, miraculous healings that Jesus performed, as amazing as each one of them was. The writer of this gospel has chosen and placed his material very carefully. In the previous chapter of this gospel, chapter 4, Jesus has that encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and he declares to her that he is the source of living water. And now here in this next chapter, 
He's providing in pagan territory the practical application of that lesson. He and he alone is the true source of healing for he and he alone is the only source of living water. All the chaos and all the confusion upon the stirring up of the waters brought nothing but misery and despair for the great majority at Bethesda. 38 years an invalid and now here he is up on his feet. There were no magic formulas. There was no special water needed, only the living water. There was no pushing past. There was no fighting to be first. There was just the spoken word of God on the lips of Jesus Christ, the font of life-giving water. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. There are only eight words, but they're eight words that brought about a healing miracle that would simultaneously show Jesus to be the true source of healing and that would demonstrate his power over the physical world and his lordship over the Sabbath. These are powerful words, life-giving words. And we're going to sing about those words now. Thank you, team.